Well, it's a joy to see each of you here this day. I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be finishing our study of the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah this morning as we come to Nehemiah chapter 13. And next week we'll begin a study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, And so you can begin to read ahead and, and see where we're going to be. Now, fairy tales are wonderful and we enjoy them because they can end with the line and they lived happily ever after. It's satisfying to think that the conflicts and the struggles of life can be left behind and that there can be a future of tranquility and fruitfulness that lie before us. Nevertheless, happily ever after is never the way that a historical tale ends. Biographies and documentaries that deal with real life situations can never end with such rose-tinted conclusions. Why? Well, because we live in a fallen world that is given to corruption. And we are fallen people who are prone to wander and compromise and give in to all manner of temptations. You see, in this world, there are no victories that lead to unbridled peace and happiness. As many of you know, my wife April and I both graduated from the University of Georgia and therefore were big UGA football fans. And this past month, they won their second national championship in a row. Next year, they're going to get the third. (laughs) And following their victory, there were great celebrations. There was confetti and there were trophies given out. There were accolades. There were parades that went through the streets of Athens, Georgia. And there was a sense that they could ride off into the sunset having achieved their highest purpose as a team story-ended. But life is never that simple, and reality set in rather quickly for this team. For the very night of their victory parade, one of their offensive linemen named Devin Willock died in a car crash. A few weeks later, a wide receiver was arrested for assault and battery. And then our our star quarterback, who had led us to two national championships in a row, Stetson Bennett, was arrested for public intoxication. I should have stopped following the news right after they won. And at least I could have lived with the delusion that everyone lived happily ever after. And that might be exactly how you feel after we read Nehemiah 13. That is, you might feel like Nehemiah 12 would have been a better place to end the historical tale of God returning His people from exile. Over the past several months, we have been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've seen how the Lord has used these men to rebuild His kingdom. We have seen the people return to the land of Israel. How Ezra led the people in rebuilding the temple. How Nehemiah led the people in the rebuilding of the wall. How both were involved in rebuilding the people of God based upon the Word of God. We've seen revival and repentance and covenant commitment, celebrations and dedications. And Nehemiah 12 was a great climax of God's work in the people of Israel. 
If you remember from a few weeks ago when Pastor Brett preached from Nehemiah 12, how the priests and the leaders of the people got up upon the newly completed wall and it surrounded all the people that were within the wall in Jerusalem. And together they lifted up their voices and they sang praises unto the Lord. The kingdom has been rebuilt. The people are glorifying God and enjoying Him as they were created to do. And they lived happily ever after. Or not. Our passage for this morning takes place 12 years after these events. We learn that in this intervening time, Nehemiah had been called back to Babylon and then after a prolonged period, returns to Jerusalem. And what does he find? Well, he finds that the people of Israel have yet again given in to their same sinful patterns. Neglecting the temple, profaning the Sabbath, intermarrying with unbelievers. Happily ever after is a nice thought, but Nehemiah is the reality of the life that we live in this world. For we have all had times of spiritual mountaintops, times of excitement and refreshing. Maybe it was our initial commitment to Christ or a youth retreat that we went on, a conference or some personal renewal where we felt that the reality of life would be put aside and we could start living happily ever after. But spiritual renewal is not a one-time event. It is a continual process. It is a task that will never end until Christ returns and establishes His eternal kingdom. And that means that we must face the reality that the work of renewing and refreshing that we desire so much for our body is less of an event and more of a process. It is less a victory and more a journey that we are upon. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. And Nehemiah 13 teaches us That if we would see the kingdom of God grow and flourish in our generation, if we would see long-term health and vitality within the kingdom of God, then we cannot give in to the idea that we have arrived or that our work is done. We cannot give in to this idea of happily ever after. Take your membership vows and ride off into the sunset. But rather, we must continually pursue covenant faithfulness, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ alone in faith. So here now, the word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the 
tithes of grain, wine, and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zodak the scribe, and Padiah the Levites, as their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And they warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, Foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? 
And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come now to the end of the history of your grace to return your people to the land of Israel, we pray that you would teach us who are sojourners in this world how we might pursue the city that is to come, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest, who has fulfilled the covenant on our behalf. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. As we come to Nehemiah 13, we must be reminded of a few weeks back when we saw that at the end of Israel's time of revival and repentance, there was a covenant signing ceremony. The people of Israel covenanted, that is, they made a promise to the Lord that they would be faithful in three very specific ways. That they would be faithful in their worship to the Lord, that they would be faithful in their work by obeying and observing the Sabbath, and that they would be faithful with their family. And yet, these are the very areas of life at issue in Nehemiah 13. Israel has broken their covenant vows to the Lord. In verses 4 through 14, we see two instances of Israel breaking their covenant vow to rightly worship the Lord. First is in verses 4 through 9. We see that the priest, Eliashib, has allowed this man, Tobiah, to take up residence in the temple. If you remember from earlier in our study of the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah was one of the main opponents to the rebuilding of God's people and particularly the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. He had joined with Sanballat and Geshem in their opposition to God's work to reestablish his people in Jerusalem. And now this man has been allowed to live in the very house of God. Second, in verses 10 through 14, we see that the people of Israel have neglected to bring the offering for the Levites. And so the Levites had to neglect their work in the temple to provide for their own families, right? They, they weren't receiving the offerings that they needed to continue their work. And so they had to go back home and start working so that they could feed their families. And we see Nehemiah's accusation to this point in verse 11. Look there at the question he asks. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? To summarize the situation, God's people stopped bringing the offering. The Levites had to stop doing the work of the temple because they had to provide for their family. And since the temple wasn't being used for anything better, they decided to invite their enemy, Tobiah, to sublet a portion of the temple like his own personal condo. 
It would be as if you, the members of this church, all stopped giving to the church and therefore all the pastors had to quit doing their jobs and find something else to do to provide for their family. And to keep the lights on, we decided to rent out our office space to Planned Parenthood or American Atheists or the Nation of Islam. How could Israel forsake the house of God? Well, in a word, they were willing to compromise. They were willing to compromise on their vow to faithfully worship God. They allowed the enemy in the door. They didn't say, hey, we're just going to stop worshiping God, but rather they compromised on giving an offering to the Lord and they compromised on the holiness of the space in which they were called to worship Him. That is, they stopped making the necessary sacrifices to ensure that God's worship continued. But if we would see long-term health and growth, the flourishing of God's kingdom in our generation, then we must learn that we can never compromise when it comes to the worship of God. However, it is an ever-present temptation to give in on this issue. To allow our worship to be compromised by the influence of the surrounding culture or by our lack of personal sacrifice thinking that it's up to somebody else to provide for the worship of God's people. In many ways, it is these two factors that have led to the weakening of the modern evangelical church. We have allowed the prevailing culture to set the tone of our worship, and we have lowered the standards of membership to the point that there is never a call for personal sacrifice. The seeker-sensitive model of church growth was born out of the idea that Sunday morning worship would be the best time to attract potential members. And therefore, services were no longer built according to biblical elements and historical liturgies, but rather they were built around the felt needs and the cultural trends that would seem to be familiar to visitors coming in. The whole movement was aimed towards making the potential visitor feel as comfortable as possible. And while there are good intentions for reaching the lost with these accommodations, and yes, it is commendable to make visitors feel comfortable, this whole idea is built on a false understanding of what worship is at its very essence. Because worship is not designed for unbelievers. Worship is not designed for visitors. And worship is not even primarily designed for believers. Worship is designed to glorify God. And that must be the central controlling factor of what we do each Sunday morning as we gather together as the people of God. Not looking around and thinking about how it is that we can please people who are coming in, but rather looking upward and looking to the Word of God and saying, what would He have us do? How might we bring to Him an offering that is pleasing unto Him? For He alone is worthy to receive glory and power and honor. He alone is worthy to receive our praise. And we cannot accommodate on this issue. We cannot compromise. But we must bring Him what He commands and no less. And what He commands is worship that is in the spirit of holiness and according to the truth of His Word. You see, if we would pursue long-term kingdom health, 
then we cannot compromise on this matter. Now this doesn't mean that Rivermont's exact expression of worship is being held up as the only faithful model. Of course, there are other expressions of worship that are faithful to God's word. Rather, never compromising worship means that we determine what we do based on what pleases God and not what pleases man. And we resolve to never give in even the smallest of accommodations, but resolutely maintain what God requires of His people. If we would see long-term help, we cannot compromise our worship. Now the next area where we see the people of Israel failing is in their trusting of the Lord with their work. The people of Israel covenanted that they would maintain the Sabbath day. However, in verses 15 through 22, we see that the people of Israel were disobeying the Sabbath regulations. It says that they were treading out wine and wine presses and that they were engaging in trade. And then in verse 17, we read Nehemiah's reaction. Look down there at verse 17, what he says. It says, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath is primarily a question of work. You see, Sabbath is rest, and the, and the other side of rest is work. And so it's, it's asking us whether or not we are willing to trust the Lord with our work by resting in him. Are we willing to trust the Lord that he will provide for all of our needs in six days and not in seven days of work? Are you willing to trust the Lord to provide, to give him one whole day out of seven? This question comes down to much more than if you're willing to not go into the office on Sundays. Rather, it reaches into all aspects of our life. All of your work comes under this question of Sabbath? Are you willing to trust that six days are enough to make the money that you need to provide for your family? Are you willing to trust that six days are enough to get your schoolwork done? Are you willing to trust that six days are enough to pursue your athletic endeavors? Are six days enough to plan your finances, accomplish your home projects, and keep up with the news? Now, I'm not here to lay down the specifics of what a Christian can and cannot do on the Lord's day, because that too easily turns into fruitless legalism. People asking questions, and I've heard questions like this, like, well, how many steps can I take in a day if I'm supposed to rest? Can I play ping pong at youth group? Can I go out to eat? Well, we can get lost in the weeds of all the particulars of this, but these are all a distraction from the central question that you need to ask yourself about the abiding principle of the Sabbath that we as Christians still must obey. Do I trust my work to the Lord to the extent that I'm willing to trust in Him and rest in His day? Nehemiah's response in verse 18 shows us How serious of an issue is the Sabbath? Look at verse 18. We read, Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? 
Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Again, the context. What's happening in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? They're being brought back from exile and reestablished in the land and rebuilding the kingdom of God. But Nehemiah says, do you not remember that it was profaning the Sabbath that was a major cause of the exile in the first place? And now the people of Israel are again violating the Sabbath and demonstrating that they don't trust the Lord with their work. Much of Jesus' conflict in his life with the Pharisees was over this issue of the Sabbath. If anybody read through the, has read through the Gospels, you know that this is a, a continual conflict between Jesus and this legally conscious sect of Jews. They wanted to ensure that exile would never happen again, that they would not break God's law to the point that he would eject them from their land. And so to ensure that that never happened again, they created a bunch of extra rules, right? They're like, okay, this is God's law. To make sure no one breaks this, we're going to set up a boundary twice as difficult to cross over so that no one will get to the heart of God's law and break it. But in doing so, they missed the point. The point is not to do nothing on the Sabbath. Rather, the point is to trust God's work of redemption in and through us on the Sabbath. You see, in his ministry, Jesus never violated God's law, but he was never beholden to the Pharisees' extra regulations either. And he would often do things on the Sabbath that incurred their wrath. But this was always to display the reality of the Sabbath, namely that we can rest on the Sabbath because God works on our behalf. In John 5, we read that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and the Pharisees got worked up because of this. Oh my goodness, how could this man do such a work as healing somebody? But Jesus explains, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, parenthetical statement according to their rules, but he was even calling God his Father and making himself equal with God. You see, the Sabbath is the day when we outwardly display our trust that God is working on our behalf. And in particular, as Christians, it is the day that we outwardly display our trust that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is working for our redemption. Jesus works on the Sabbath because God works on the Sabbath, and Jesus is God. That is the whole point of his conflict with the Pharisees. Not that we shouldn't rest on the Sabbath, but that we should rest in his work on the Sabbath. And God's people, we must have a tangible expression of our trust in the work of God. And this is one of the reasons why the Christian Sabbath is Sunday and no longer Saturday. Because Sunday is the day when Christ's greatest work was accomplished. Sunday is the day when He rose from the dead and He defeated death on our behalf. And when we honor the Sabbath day by resting from our work, it displays that we trust Christ's work above our own. And when the people of God stop resting in the work of God, 
then our vitality and our health and our strength is broken. But when we stop our striving and we trust in the work of redemption that Christ has accomplished for us in Christ, then we are revived and we are healed as a people. You see, to see long-term kingdom health and growth, not just a flash-in-the-pan revival, but long-term strength and growth, we can never compromise our worship. We can never compromise our resting in the work of the Lord. And the final thing is that we must never compromise our families. One of the central issues that Nehemiah had to combat in his call to rebuild the people of God was their tendency to marry unbelievers. Now, as we've said, each time we've had this issue come up, the point is not race. The point is religion. If you go through the Word of God, we see continually that pagan nations were actually invited in and brought in and are a central part of the coming of the Messiah. But they had to confess faith in the one Lord, the biblical God. And what this call is, is a call for God's people not to marry outside of the faith, but to marry in the Lord, to not be unequally yoked. Nehemiah has spent much time on this issue Nevertheless, after a 12 years absence, the people of Israel were back to marrying unbelievers. Look at verses 23 through 24. We read the central issue here. He says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. As we continue to read, we see that even the priests were engaged in these unholy unions that produced children who were not raised in the faith. Nehemiah pulls on the history of God's people to explain why this is such an unwise path to pursue. He says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. See, this is why we can never compromise on the issue of marriage and family. We might think that we can maintain our faith in God even if we marry an unbeliever. We might think that our children will grow to follow in the ways of the Lord. But Christian, even King Solomon couldn't overcome the temptation that was presented by his unbelieving wives. And as we read the history of Solomon and the next generation, we see that as he gave in to pagan worship, the result was that the kingdom of God was split in the next generation. And this is how the work of the kingdom fails long term. When one generation compromises, the next generation is deeply affected. And therefore, if we would see long term kingdom health, we must never give in on the issue of marriage and family because family is the context in which the next generation is raised up. We are called to join together husband and wife united in Christ in our faith and to raise children, whether they be biological or adopted or foster children, bring them into our homes and teach them the language of the faith. 
You see, we read that they spoke the language of Ashdod. And you think, well, my, my, what's so wrong about that? Well, there wasn't a, you know, an NAV version of the Bible, New Ashdod version. They needed to know the language of their people because the language of their people was the language of their faith. And if you compromise on this issue, your children will not know the language of the faith. And I'm not speaking about English or Hebrew or Greek. I'm talking about the Word of God and the great doctrines of our faith. And if you compromise on this, the next generation won't know the Word of life. And therefore, we cannot compromise. For if we compromise in our families, then the work will only last a few years. And then it will fade away. As we read through Nehemiah 13, I heard a few little giggles, little laughs as we read about how Nehemiah responded to some of these sins. Our modern sensibilities are a bit offended by what Nehemiah did. Just by way of reminder... He had Tobiah evicted, took his furniture and threw it out of the temple. He shames the nobles for their way that they have neglected and profaned the worship of God. He threatens the Sabbath-breaking merchants, saying that he will lay hands on them, and so they stop coming. He curses, beats, and even pulls out the hair of the men who intermarry. Now, some believe that this phrase means that he had their heads shaved as a sign of cleansing. But either way, we might think that his responses were a bit over the top. Did he cross the line with his physical punishments? Now, I'm not going to put myself in the place of defending hair pulling. (laughs) And nor should we think that following historical examples is how we should build our ethic. However, at the very least, we need to take note of Nehemiah's zeal for the kingdom of God. And his willingness to take a stand for covenant faithfulness. He was willing to take a stand and pick a hill and die on it. The zeal reminds me of John chapter 2 where we read, The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, despite what popular Christian culture teaches... Niceness is not the chief quality of a Christian life. And there are certain issues that are so central, so vitally important, that we must be willing to take a stand. There are certain boundaries that are not to be crossed. And there are certain convictions that are not to be compromised. And if we would see the long-term health of the kingdom of God, then we must never allow these boundaries to be transgressed. And if they are transgressed, there must be a Christ-like fury and zeal. 
Because as Christians, we must believe that there are hills worth dying on. So often I hear people say, you know, that hill just isn't worth dying on. And so we retreat to the next one. And we retreat to the next one. And eventually there are no hills left in the kingdom of God. You see... Standing upon a hill for what God has called us to do is the very example that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us, His people. That He was willing to take His stand. That He was willing to stiffen up and set His face like flint. He was willing to lay down His life and to carry His cross up upon the hill of Calvary and to pour out His blood to save us, His people. That was not a nice act. That was an act of God glorifying sacrifice, not compromising at any point. He was willing to be zealous for what God called him to be zealous for. How will the kingdom of God be rebuilt and renewed in our generation? Well, that's the question that we've been asking throughout our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we come to Nehemiah 13, we might be discouraged. If our hope is in the work of man, because man just continually fails. And therefore we're pointed forward to the work of Christ. That though our worship is compromised, through Christ we offer that which is pleasing to God. And though we continually fail to fully trust God and rest in Him, we know that Christ is continually working on our behalf to provide us the rest that we need. And because we continually fail to live out our faith in our families, knowing that we've made mistakes in the past that continue to have repercussions for us and for our children. But we know that Christ has given to us grace and that He has died to make us and to make our children members of the household of God. And therefore, for us to be faithful to the covenant and to see long-term health and growth, we must not look to our own ability to fulfill the covenant, but we must look to the One who fulfilled the covenant on our behalf and trust in His work alone. Because there is a day when our striving will cease. And Christ will establish His eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more and there will not be mourning and there will not be crying and there will not be pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. And there we will finally have our happily ever after. Fully enjoying God to all eternity. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to Your Word and we see reflected in Your Word our sin, our weakness, our brokenness, and that if the kingdom was relying and resting upon our ability to fulfill the covenant, it would just be one exile after another. Oh, would You forgive us by the blood of Christ, we plead, as we look to Christ and His work alone, trusting that He has perfectly fulfilled the covenant on our behalf and that because of His work, 
we will truly and surely inherit a kingdom that will not end. In his name we pray. Amen.